I'm an international student. And so knew less than nothing about Canadian climate policy coming into this episode. But I assumed that it would be pretty straightforward. A rich country with a liberal government in power, they're probably doing great on climate change. Here to prove me wrong is Dr. Catherine Harrison from UBC's Department of Political Science. This episode, we sift through the determinants behind Canadian climate policy, its role in negotiations, and the impacts of the complicated federal-provincial structure that the Canadian government here follows. Dr. Harrison did her master's in chemical engineering and political science at MIT and her PhD in political science here at UBC. She now writes extensively in Canadian climate policy and joins the global get-down to give us a one-on-one. So we could start off with this episode on sort of a 101 in Canadian climate policy. Just to start off, just as like a brief overview, what are our current nationally determined contributions or NDCs as per the Paris Agreement? And do you think we're on track to attaining that, I believe, 30% reduction from 2005 levels by 2030? What, what is the overview sort of to start off to base ourselves in this discussion? Well, Canada's original Paris Agreement target was a 30% reduction below 2005 levels by 2030, but it's now 40 to 45% below 2005 levels by 2030. I think it's plausible that we will make minus 40% or come close to it. 45% seems unlikely. And to get close to 40%, everything has to go right. There can't be delays in adopting regulatory measures that are proposed. They have to be implemented on time and they have to be implemented with the level of stringency that was proposed. So there, there's no room for slippage in the um, the national emissions reduction plan that was released last year. In trying to understand this kind of general Canadian climate policy, I'd like to look at what the determinants of it are. Is it pegged to sort of the climate policy of other G7 nations or other trading partners? Is that what determines it or is it more domestic concerns and interests to determine how our administration is going to take climate policy? Or would you say it's a mixture of the two, something else altogether? What's the biggest sort of factor that determines Canadian climate policy? I think it's a mixture of the two for everyone. No country ignores its domestic politics and no country in in dealing with climate change is ignoring its trading partners either. Um, you know, the whole the whole point of the Paris Agreement is to act together to reassure each other in an iterative way that other countries are acting too so they can go step by step. One of the reasons they're so insistent on doing that is that they have actors within their countries that are very concerned that, you know, if one country gets out of line with its trading partners, that there will be impacts on competitiveness or that the costs that are assumed by that country will be for naught. Like it won't matter because the world will get warmer anyway. So it all matters. Um, in Canada's case, the country that it all, has always mattered most is the U.S. It is. It it says a lot that Canada stayed the course in the Paris Agreement during the Trump administration when the U.S. pulled out. Um, that left a very large gap in Canada's ambition relative to the U.S. and one that would have made the private sector quite nervous in Canada. I think Canada upping its target 
was done at the same time as the U.S. under the Biden administration adopted a 50 percent reduction target for the U.S. So I think, you know, Canada's new target reflected the timing of the U.S. acting. It was done in the context of an international meeting that the U.S. had called. Um, it's it's a little harder for the U.S. than for Canada for reasons we can get into. So that's, I think, why the ambition was less for Canada. Yeah, why don't I leave it there and we can delve into the domestic politics um, as you see fit. Mm -hmm. So as a sort of segue into the domestic politics, what you've illustrated right now, it doesn't sound like too far from an ideal situation, at least like from my sort of malnourished undergraduate knowledge perspective. Uh, yet you've spoken about in like your previous lectures and stuff. I think I remember this chart that you showed where to understand and encapsulate climate uh, climate policy in Canada. You looked at it as uh, looked at it as sort of a series of constant failures where we failed to meet our Rio agreements, our Kyoto sort of um, uh, our requirements, where we said we would. So can you illustrate why that is that cycle of like constant um, well constant commitments that we consistently fail to meet? And do you think we're exiting that cycle now, or is it? Uh, something that's likely to prosper even now? I think there's a bunch of reasons that um, Canada has failed to date. When I said in, you know, that that other uh, lecture that Canada has failed, it's that a whole series of Canadian governments set emissions reduction targets. Sometimes those were domestic. Sometimes they were incorporated into international agreements um, at Rio, in Kyoto, in Copenhagen, in Paris, and we've never met any of them. Liberal federal governments, conservative federal governments. Why have we failed? One overarching big irony is that the countries that have sort of a moral obligation to make the biggest reductions face the strongest political opposition to doing so because they have entrenched carbon intensive interests. In part, that has been uh, fossil fuel intensive industries of oil and gas, and are not supported, especially the oil and gas. So Canada's economy is very much tied to its oil and gas industry, but other manufacturing sectors have taken advantage of the abundance of inexpensive fossil fuels. The industry incumbents, and they resist carbon pricing, Another part of it is that Canadian households have very carbon intensive lifestyles. Canadians drive the least fuel efficient vehicles in the world. We live in relatively large houses. We tend to commute in single occupancy vehicles to work. And so the kinds of policies that are needed to drive down not just industry emissions, but households own fossil fuel consumption will entail increasing their prices raising the price of gasoline, which is politically explosive in Canada. So there's pushback from voters as well as industry. And finally, Canada's federal system of government in which provincial governments have their own jurisdiction, the federal government has jurisdiction. It's one in which the provinces have a lot of jurisdiction relevant to climate. In particular, they own most of the lands in their territory, that's contested by First Nations. Um, but under the Constitution, the provinces are the owners of so-called crown lands and also the associated natural resources. So the provincial governments 
that happen to have fossil fuels are in the fossil fuel development business. business. Their economies rely on fossil fuels. Their provincial government revenues depend on collecting royalties from oil and gas companies for producing those fossil fuels. So there has been strong opposition from provincial government within the Canadian Federation as well. And those three things combined has made it difficult. Looking ahead, I said Canada can make our target if everything goes right. That requires a lot of things to go right. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to put money on us getting to 40% reductions, but I do think some some important things have changed. One of them is the current federal government has been willing to take on a battle with those fossil fuel producing provinces instead of effectively allowing them to veto national action. So the federal government starting in you know 2016 started adopting policies of the sort that we need. Regulations, carbon pricing, they fought the provinces all the way to the Supreme Court and won. And they are doubling down on some of those policies um, and proposing new ones. So there's a lot of measures that are proposed to get to minus 40%, including significantly increasing Canada's carbon price, regulating the sale of motor vehicles, passenger vehicles, such that it has to get to 100% zero emission vehicles in 2035 regulating electricity production to get to 100% net zero in 2035, and arguably most important but most contentious, regulating emissions from oil and gas production with a steadily decreasing cap en route to net zero in 2050. That one is taking on the oil and gas industry and the provinces that are home to that industry. And um, will there's there's a lot of politicking still to go for that one. So there are two questions, two lines of questioning, I would say, that arise out of this this response. The first is to do with the individual households that you mentioned and how each individual household has a high component of uh, greenhouse gas consumption. So first to deal with that, because I know when we're talking of individual households in the context of, for example, the Russia-Ukraine war, would you say that the, the events in Europe ever since February 2022 have had an impact whatsoever in terms of gas prices, et cetera, and how does that impact overall domestic climate policy? A, a few ways. Um, one of the ironies of climate policy in Canada is that in other countries, high oil prices tends to drive down oil consumption and reduces emissions. Um, in Canada, high oil prices does deter oil consumption. When, when, oil, when gas prices are high, people tend to buy um, more fuel efficient vehicles. But what it also does is it it opens up markets for Canada's relatively costly oil exports. So the oil that we produce from the tar sands is relatively costly pr to produce. So we need relatively high prices for our oil exports to thrive. So that means that production has increased and with that emissions. So on balance, High oil prices in Canada tend to increase Canada's emissions in the short term, at least. The other impacts of the Russia's invasion of Ukraine um, are less than one might expect in that the 
the oil and gas industry has certainly made arguments that the world needs more Canadian oil and gas, replace, help replace Russian oil and gas. The problem is that we don't have the infrastructure to do it in the short term. Uh, it takes a long time to build a new oil pipeline. It takes a long time to build a new liquefied natural gas facility to export fossil gas to other countries. So last year's annual report, um, the World Energy Outlook from the International Energy Agency, found that while Russia's invasion of Ukraine is creating a global reshuffling in the sort of next few years, in other respects, it's actually prompting countries, especially in Europe, um, to double down on climate action so that they're less vulnerable to Russia. And that that doesn't bode well for LNG exports for Canada, at least for the long term. In the short term, you know, countries like Japan want Canadian LNG, but we can't build new LNG facilities that fast. Um, so the real question is kind of will there still be demand globally for that LNG five and six years from now when some of those facilities might come on stream if they're approved because um, the International Energy Agency is not bullish on the prospects for Canada's LNG. It was actually quite discouraging in its 2022 report. And then the second line of questioning that arose, which you touched on pretty well, um, is the federal provincial structure in Canada, which I know comes up a lot when you talk about climate change in Canada's climate policy, which is generally, that's one of the main considerations. So when we're looking at Canadian climate policy, would it make sense, at least like from a scholarly perspective, to take this pan-Canada approach or should we look specifically province to province? And then if we do take this like more of a provincial-wide approach, because as you said, some provinces are emitting more than others. Some of them have more of an interest in maintaining oh, industries which are greenhouse dependent. Would it make sense to sort of let certain provinces that are doing better in climate change targets have more of a say to dictate policy? Do you think taking this pan-Canada approach could hold back we effectively had 25 years of letting the provinces do their thing because there was this norm. It wasn't a constitutional requirement, but there was a norm of um, trying to get consensus in federal provincial meetings. And that, that was basically impossible because different provinces would say no um, to federal proposals, especially Alberta and Saskatchewan. If Alberta and Saskatchewan were countries, they would have the highest emissions per capita in the world. Now, that would also be true of some subnational, you know, of Wyoming in the U.S. Ontario closing its coal-fired power plants in the, um, the first decade of this century. British Columbia adopted a carbon tax. Quebec is engaging in cap and trade with California. So some provinces did things. It tended to be the provinces with the least carbon intensive um, economies that acted. And any emissions reductions that they achieved were undone by much greater emissions growth by the, by the provinces that were not taking aggressive action. And therein lies the problem of leaving it to the provinces is that the, the provinces that choose not to act, the provinces that, that's bread and butter is based on producing a lot of fossil fuels with associated emissions, both in Canada and much greater emissions in the countries that actually burn those fossil fuels. 
they they don't have incentives to reduce their emissions anywhere near the same degree, and they can undo the work of others. Um, so we do need a level of pan-Canadian coordination, and that's the point where we started to make more progress in Canada, sort of bending the emissions growth. And this last last week, the latest emissions inventory came out. And although emissions from 2020 to 2021 went up a teeny bit, a small bit, like one and a half percent, that's nowhere near how much the economy grew. So that's very encouraging. That suggests that there's a structural change starting to take place. That's primarily because of federal policies that have been put in place. Now, that doesn't preclude provinces from going beyond. If a province wants to set an even more ambitious target or set an even higher carbon price for themselves, they can. Um, they're not doing it uh, because getting to 40 percent by 2030 is going to be hard. So it's unlikely they would do that. Provinces are the ones we would expect to act in the first instance in things that are local, like urban planning, sort of urban design, investments in public transit, building codes. But what changed in 2021, the federal government adopted something called the Net Zero Emissions Accountability Act, not a good name. Um, but what it basically did is it creates a responsibility for the federal Minister of Environment and Climate Change to ensure that Canada has a plan to meet its emissions targets and report on how they're doing uh, regularly. Might be every two years. I can't remember the exact reporting deadlines. What that means is if the provinces show leadership and do things, that's great. The federal government can say, here's what we expect to happen. You know, here's the emissions reductions we expect from the provinces. If they don't, it's now the federal minister's responsibility to find ways to do it by sectoral regulations, by carbon pricing, potentially by spending. The federal government's putting a lot of money in, into things like mass transit within local communities, rebates for households to switch from gas furnaces to um, heat pumps, consumer rebates for purchase of electric vehicles, um, joining provincial governments in subsidizing auto manufacturers to retool their factories so that they're building electric vehicles in Canada. So let me turn then to the international angle. Would you say overall, if you're evaluating Canada's performance ever since climate diplomacy became a thing, let's say in like the mid of like last halfway through the last century, how would you evaluate Canada's performance as either an orchestrating leader in terms of climate action, or would you say all of these domestic concerns have held Canada back from taking sort of the role that developing countries expect countries like Canada to take? Um, I don't think any country has done what developing countries would reasonably expect the wealthy countries to do. <laughs> no one's done that. And that's why we're in such trouble. It's not the only reason why, but it's part of it. Canada, certainly, I would say climate change reached the international agenda in 1988. That's when there was the first major international conference in Toronto, then Rio in 92, um, where the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change was negotiated. Canada has not been a leader 
internationally, there have been significant periods where Canada has been a major laggard at international meetings. Civil society, NGOs give out fossil of the day awards and sometimes fossil of the year awards. And Canada has regularly won that for failing to act, for looking for concessions for our track record, where we kept promising emissions reduction. And in the meantime, our emissions went up. We went in the wrong direction, even as we were promising significant reductions. That puts us in a difficult situation right now where Canada's commitment to get our carbon price to $170 per ton by 2030 to phase out sale of zero emission vehicles, clean electricity, because of that long period of emissions growth, we have a lot of damage to undo. So I think if Canada continues in the direction we're going, if the federal government continues full steam ahead with the targets that it's set for different sectors, doesn't miss deadlines in implementing those regulations, we can go a long way to repairing our reputation internationally, but we are not a leader. And we've got we've got elections between now and 2030 that could be very consequential for climate policy if um, a conservative government was elected based on what Mr. Poilievre is saying. Um, I would have zero expectation that a conservative majority would meet Canada's emissions reduction target for 2030. I know you mentioned earlier this in terms of accounting for Canada's climate impacts that we don't really account for emissions that will emerge because of the supply chain in Canada, but then are actually undertaken elsewhere in other countries because of Canadian exports. And I know there are you spelled out less than optimistic scenarios in terms of Canadian politics for like climate change policy overall. But in an ideal sense, do you think the step of incorporating emissions that are indirectly Canadian, which are because of Canadian exports outside of Canada, do you think incorporating that into our climate accounting is a necessary step? And do you think that's something that could happen at all in the near or distant future? I don't, <clears throat> I don't see it happening that way um, because under the UN Framework Convention, countries are responsible for the emissions that happen within their borders. So there would effectively be double counting. If Canada counted the downstream combustion emissions from the fossil fuels we export, those countries that burn them are also accountable for them. There are other ways, but I do think Canada shares responsibility for those emissions. We are exporting more than another Canada of unburned carbon, and we're hoping to continue those exports. We don't talk about the um, emissions that result from those fossil fuel exports. When we talk about our you know, climate ambitions, we're only talking about the stuff within our borders. So there is increasing pressure for countries to plan to, to stop increasing their fossil fuel production, for starters, and to plan for steady decline of their fossil fuels. One of the challenges is there's a, in the same way, there's kind of an um, international coordination challenge at the emissions end. Nobody wants to reduce their emissions if other countries aren't going to, because it wouldn't fix the problem, but it would cost their economy money. There's also reluctance to unilaterally constrain one's production 
of fossil fuels because others will just fill the market with their fossil fuels. There's more than enough oil um, in the ground to burn the planet. So shortage is not the problem. Under in Within the Paris Agreement, there's a subset of countries called the Beyond Oil and Gas Alliance that is announcing their plans to end fossil fuel expansion and decline their production. Um, it'll be interesting to see if that grows. There's a civil society initiative to negotiate a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty, basically putting attention to plans for production. Because one of the things we're seeing is that the UN, UN provides two different reports that track whether we're on track, which we're not. Um, the emissions gap report looks at what emissions would we expect based on countries' current policies and countries' targets relative to what we need to be doing to meet the goal of the Paris Agreement to limit warming to 1.5 to 2C. And, and there's an emissions gap. Policies are not delivering the emissions reduction that are needed to meet those goals. There's another way to account for it, which is to say, what are the plans for producing fossil fuels? Because we know how much they're going to emit when they're burned. So if instead of looking at the consumption policies, we look at the policies with respect to production of coal, oil, and gas, and then we project what emissions would, reduce, would, would result when those fossil fuels are burned, they find that there is a production gap and the production gap is even bigger than the emissions gap. So in other words, fossil fuel producers are producing more than what one would expect is needed based on countries' current policies and um, their emissions targets. So the producers are trying to get their stuff to markets while they still can, and that's a problem. And so we arguably need coordination both on production as well as um, emissions. And countries like Canada should be showing greater leadership because we are one of the wealthy countries. Our wealth is not unrelated to the damage we've caused to the global climate. And we also are one of the countries producing the most emissions intensive oil. Our, our oil is very emissions intensive to get out of the ground. So it doesn't make sense um, for us to be the last barrel produced. There is easier oil um, that is less expensive and less carbon intensive to produce. So that's how I think we can have that conversation rather than just Canada unilaterally taking responsibility for all of the downstream emissions from our fossil fuel exports. It definitely sounds like there's a lot more considerations than a novice to this issue would expect a country like Canada to have in terms of climate politics. But latest on the headlines from COP27 was this entire issue of loss and damages and this entire fund similar to the adaptation fund, similar institutions, which the simplest way I understood it is developed countries help developing countries pay for climate adaptation. So is that even a point of conversation that comes up in Canada or is there just way too much baggage, too many bottlenecks to even introduce that into legislature? Um, Canada's Environment Minister Stephen Gilbeau played a real leadership role in getting that agreement on loss and damages. Um, Canada's Environment Minister is a, a former Greenpeace climate activist who attended COP 
I don't know, 20 sometimes before as an activist. So he gets it and he cares. Um, there are three forms of climate finance, investments in emissions reduction, helping uh, developing countries develop along a cleaner path, financial support for adaptation so that they will not pay, they will, that the cost to limit the costs of climate change on human health, the environment, the economy of those countries. And then loss and damage is a new one, which is helping those countries that with the impacts that they're not going to be able to adapt to that are unavailable, losing their land, loss of lives. So the impacts of climate change, there's gonna be a lot that can't just be adapted. This, what happened at the last COP was agreement to create a fund for loss and damages, which wealthy countries have resisted for, I don't know, forever, but they haven't agreed on how much money to put in the fund. They haven't agreed on how much money they will provide for um, emissions reduction, for mitigation and adaptation after 2025 either. So the wealthy countries have really not been forthcoming with their money. Uh, and I think that's going to need to change because we can't afford the, the planet. We all collectively cannot afford development path, um, but Many of them have fossil fuels available. There's coal all over the place. And it is a really easy and cheap way to produce electricity. Um, so how do we support developing countries to ensure that they they go a different route with cleaner, cleaner energy, but also have financial support in grappling with the consequences, much of which is already locked in? I had one last question just to finish things off. And it's it's different from the rest because we focus on the domestic, the international. This is more on the role of individuals and particularly your personal journey because I noticed something very interesting. I'm sure many people bring this up from your bio online where you transitioned from a degree in chemical engineering to political science and you actually worked as an engineer in the oil industry. So how does that kind of, not to be too conspiratorial, but you kind of do the, or the polar opposite of what you started off doing, right? So could you outline how that journey kind of worked and what the what the pathway was? So I'm I'm pretty old. I'm in my 60s now. So when I was working as um, an engineer in the oil industry, um, we weren't talking about climate change. I mean, scientists knew. Scientists have known about the basic physics of um, global warming for over 100 years, but it wasn't. It wasn't on the political agenda. Um, in fact, I remember as a child growing up in Canada in I think it was grade seven, my teacher, my beloved grade seven teacher pointing to Northern Alberta in a map of Canada on the front board and saying, there is so much oil in the ground there that Canada is going to do the world a huge favor. This is gonna be Canada's contribution to the world. And it was seen as a, a developing the oil sands was seen as a patriotic act and a contribution to the world. Um, I mean, we got paid for it too, of course, but the world has changed and we know a lot that we didn't know then. 
And so, and so have I, I've learned that it's, we can't continue to develop those resources um, along the way. I also switched fields from chemical engineering to political science. Um, back then, I was looking more at uh, um, my scholarly work. But, you know, over the last 20 years, have shifted my focus to climate change. And um, so I, I no longer see development of the, the tar sands as a patriotic act. It's those are resources that have to stay in the ground. All of the work I do is trying to understand and hopefully through that understanding, advance climate policy where I started my career. Thank you so much. I think that's an amazing point to end. Thank you so much for your time. That's, uh, that, was, that was very insightful. You're welcome. My pleasure.